that floor wonderful? It makes you feel like you're dancing. You want to dance? No. <laughs> Just as well. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival on this classic Edinburgh summer's day. Of course, it won't rain by the end. Uh, my name's Paul Johnson. I'm an Edinburgh crime novelist, which is just as well because this is an event in the Scottish crime fiction strand. Let me tell you what's going to happen uh, over the next hour. I'll introduce what do you our... What going to happen? Well, I think it's going to happen, because normally when I chair Val, nothing goes according to plan, in the good sense. <laughs> uh, in fact, I've got written here, we've already changed here, because I've got written here, I will introduce our author, after which she will present. And she told me on the way down here, about 10 metres away, that she wasn't going to present. <laughs> I'll get her for that. <laughs> so I will be You've starting... You've been saying that for years as well. <laughs> I have, and I haven't succeeded either. Uh, I will attempt to pin her down with complex questions. Uh, after that, you will have the opportunity to do the same thing. We've got roving microphones. They'll come to you if you stick your hands up. Um, keep the mic close to your mouth and the questions short and succinct if possible. There will be a signing afterwards, as ever. And what I have to tell you is that we have a book festival exclusive, uh, Val's new book, is not officially published till the 3rd of September, but it is available at the wonderful Edinburgh International Book Festival bookshop and in the signing tent, so take advantage. Mobile telephones, kindly turn them off or you will be shot. <laughs> so, Val McDermott is a Pfeiffer. For those of you who are not local, that means she's on the, from the other side of the uh, water. She was educated at Oxford University and then worked as a journalist and as a radio broadcaster, ending up as the Northern Bureau Chief of the People in 1988. She's written for stage, radio, and short story anthologies, obviously far too talented. Her first crime novel was Report for Murder in 1987, followed by three more for the women's press, and then Kate Brannigan's debut was in Deadbeat in 1992, which was again followed by five more. Uh, she's been widely published abroad and has won a major award in France, uh, along with many others in the States and over here. She's best known probably for her psychological thrillers featuring Tony Hill and Carol Jordan, uh, which have been successfully televised as The Wire and the Blood, starring Robson Green. The first of those novels, The Mermaid Singing, won the Gold Dagger for the best crime novel back in 1995. She's also written standalone novels, including the award-winning and more recently televised A Place of Execution. Her novels have been translated into over 30 languages and have sold over 10 million copies. According to the Daily Express, she is the real mistress of psychological gripping thrillers, which kind of raises the question, who is the not real mistress? But any ideas? You'd have to ask Jenny Murray that. <laughs> yeah, right, she wrote that. Okay, we'll ask her afterwards. She has a son and three cats, and she divides her time when not touring between South Manchester and Northumberland. She's here to talk about her new Tony Hill, Carol Jordan novel, Fever of the Bone. I was about to hold it up, but this is a proof, and it says, No One Compares To, which is not the title of the new novel. Fever of the Bone... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Val McDermott. So, tell us about Fever of the Bone, Val. Um, it's about 136,000 words long, um, many of them different. Um, it's got, I think, 44 chapters, is it? Hold on. Um, and it's... <laughs> The things I have to do for the book festival. 43, it would appear. 43. Unless I'm sure missing it's not one. 44. Yeah, you're right, it is 44. 44 yeah. <laughs> um, and it's the sixth novel to feature Tony Hill and Carol Jordan. Um, the interesting thing about, for me about Tony Hill and Carol Jordan is, is to continue moving the relationship forward. Um, it's, it's a relationship that has great complexity, I think, because 
you're dealing with two people who are in their different ways quite damaged and it's it's a kind of it's almost like one of these sort of stately dances where they sort of move towards each other and then move away from each other and move towards each other and move away from each other um, and the circumstances that they find themselves in professionally uh, frequently serve to to drive a wedge between them and I suppose at, at the heart of this book um, is Carol trying to present Tony with information that she thinks he should have and him saying I don't want to know that um, and, and there is, so that at the heart of this book there's a personal emotional story as well as the story of a serial murderer who Tony as a psychological profiler and Carol as a detective are charged with unmasking. Do you find yourself with a series that's gone on now for six novels um, struggling to decide which is more important between the main characters and everything else that's going on in the books or do you invest m most of your energies in creating the characters? Um, I still start with story. Um, for me the starting point of any book is, is what is this book about? What, something that excites me, something that, that speaks to me, that, that, that seems to have at its heart the possibility of an interesting story. So without that interesting story, there's really no point in even starting to think about where I'm going to go with the characters. Because if there is no uh, narrative to attach them to, there is no, there is no book. Um, I'm not interested in writing a novel that is about the emotional travails of Tony Hill and Carol Jordan. I'm interested in writing the story of, of a crime and, and the way that that affects lots of different lives and what, that, what impact that has on, on the lives of my ongoing characters, which by now is not just Tony and Carol, it's also other police officers that Carol works with. So there are, there are people in this, this book that we're meeting for the, the fourth, fifth, sixth time, some of them. So again, their, their lives are, are affected by, by their history. My characters carry their past on their shoulders. Um, it's not... It's not like, you know, like with Agatha Christie, you read Miss Marple, and it doesn't matter what order you read them in because Miss Marple remains essentially the same. I mean, the only thing that, that really alters with Miss Marple is that her arthritis gets a bit worse. Um, <laughs> but there's no, there's no, there's no sort of self-consciousness in, in that sense. But I think that the, the, the modern crime novel demands writers are a little bit more, um, that we think a bit more about what happens to our characters and what that does to people's lives, that, that it's not something that, that crime is not just something that happens in a vacuum, that it actually does have an impact. So uh, what was, was there a kernel that got this story going, a particular image, a particular um, idea, something like that? Uh, yes. And it <laughs> was. This is, this, is, this is a book that is peculiarly difficult to talk about in any detail because almost anything I say about where the idea originally came from and what the original idea was gives away crucial information that I don't necessarily want the, the readers to have early on in the book. Well, well uh, half I'll of the original idea, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, part of the, the, the idea for, for this book, of course, was the seeds were sown in the previous Tony and Carol book, Beneath the Bleeding, um, when we discover in the course of, of, of the novel, we discover the identity of Tony Hill's well, I use the word father in the loosest possible sense. The man who's, who's half of Tony's gametes. Um, the man who, who got his mother pregnant. We find out about the existence of this man, but that he's already dead. So um, one of the, 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 the starting points for this book was um, for Tony to investigate his past if he wanted to. Or if he didn't want to, Carol would do it for him anyway and then present it like a dog dropping a bone at the feet of its master. You know. um, so that whole issue, it started off with this idea that, that somewhere around 
The idea of this book was going to be issues of, 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 of fatherhood, of relationships, of nature versus nurture. And that was kind of a sort of something that I was, I was throwing around in my head as an idea of a starting point. And I was walking on the beach one afternoon with, with my wife and the dog, and um, she, I was talking about something else that had, had occurred to me as a possible um, starting point for a novel. And she said, well, honey, I think that would work really well with Tony's you know, quest or non-quest for his father. And as she said that, it suddenly made, made sense to me that how, how these ideas could, could knit together. And it's, it's always, it always starts with, with little things. It starts with the germ of an idea that, that I start poking and prodding at and, and unraveling and, and, and following where it might lead me. Um, and, and you often end up going down false, um, false trails uh, and, and then sort of having to, to backtrack to, to where it still was, was something interesting and possible. Um, I don't know, there's, there's been a lot of publicity recently about these, these um, Agatha Christie's secret notebooks. Mm. Um, and I, 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 I was talking to the guy who, who had deciphered these notebooks the other day, and, and, and I had read an early copy of the book, and, and I was fascinated by, by the way that Christie's developed her plot ideas in, in what seems to me to be quite a similar sort of way. Um, she'd write something, she'd make a note about something, uh, and then it, you know, she'd, she'd try pushing that in a few directions, and then she'd leave it, and then two years later in a different notebook, the idea would turn up again going in a different direction. And that's very much how it is for me. I, I think you, you, I start off with something, and I find it interesting, and I'll poke and prod at it, and see what possibilities there might be. And if it doesn't start to move in a satisfactory direction, I'll, I'll lay it to one side and often come back to it, sometimes years later, thinking, I had that idea, there must be something in there that mm -hmm. I can work with. So you have the idea, and obviously you've got, with this being a series, you've got the characters, or at least a lot of the characters. Um, how much more planning do you do then, and what form does it take before you actually start writing? Well, I used to be very organised. Um, I used to sort of sit and work things out on, on file cards and, 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 um, and, and do a synopsis, mm -hmm. uh, quite a detailed synopsis. I would have my little file cards, and I would... Uh, and I ended up writing this, this, and I'd juggle them about, you know, so it was like a bit like countdown, I'll have two from pile A, Carl, and one from pile B, you know, uh, and, until it kind of seemed to me to make sense and look a bit more like a fair isle jumper rather than a ball of wool that the cat had been at. Um, and so when it, when it had a shape, I would start writing, and then I, I would start at the beginning, and I would write 1,500, 2,000 words a day, and that would be fine, and, and I'd do that till I got to the end of it. And that worked really well for about 15, 16 books, and then, for some reason, I don't really understand, it stopped working. Mm -hmm. um, so, the way it works now, uh, after a, a couple of books of sheer, unmitigated, blind panic, um, I've now actually got calmer about it because I've done this a few times now and, 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 and I feel that I can do it this way now. Um, and the way it, it tends to work is that I have the, the idea and, and I develop that into the kind of basic shape of the story. So I have this kind of overall arc of the story. I know pretty much where I'm starting from and I know where I'm aiming for and I know sort of some of the stuff along the way, how things, how things fit together along the way. Um, but the actual nitty gritty, the, the, the sort of detailed twists and turns, the detailed character development and, and, and where exactly this, the bits of the story come together is, is not clear to me mm -hmm. at the beginning. Um, and now what I, I tend to do is I, I start off sort of feeling my way into the book and write maybe the first 50, 60 pages, sort of gradually, slowly, really quite slowly. Um, and uh, then I set it to one side for two, three, four months. And then I have this insane spell of six to eight weeks where all I do is write uh, and, and eat and sleep. And uh, 
by that stage, I've kind of I've gone through a process, I suppose, of thinking about it and and trying out things in my head and 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 getting to know the characters and having conversations with myself and and getting a sense of of how things might fit together. So that by the time I actually start to write, it feels that everything's in a very immediate place. It's kind of right in front of my face. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's this sort of tremendous surge um, where the rest of the book gets written in this ridiculously short space of time. And do you find that uh, the sort of, well, put it this way, what, what's the most kind of exciting part of the process for you? I mean, is it, is it that you suddenly, it suddenly goes in a direction you hadn't predicted, that kind of thing? I think the most exciting parts for me is always before I actually start, um, because then the, the possibilities are limitless. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really, although you have a kind of end point in mind, you might not end up there, and it's, it's all very fluid and, and, and exciting and full of possibilities. And, and, you know, there is that sense of it's possible that this time I might write the perfect book, you know, where the story will all flow beautifully and, and the characters will, will, will leap off the page to vivid life. And the prose will be wonderful and extraordinary and, and, and people will keep stopping to read that paragraph again because it was so wonderful. But they want to carry on reading because the story is so... Uh, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> You've, so, you've written so several of these start, already, though. Before you start, thank you, but, uh, but so before you start, all these possibilities are there on the table. But as soon as you start writing, you know, one by one they get crossed off <laughs> as you sort of struggle with it. I mean, you know yourself what it's like. You, you know, you, you, you have these ideas, you have vague ideas. Some of them have more shape than others. Mm. And when you start putting them down on paper, you realise that some of them are completely preposterous. And, you know, like, honestly, that's not going to fool a drunken child of two and a half for more than two seconds. Well, I don't know. I still run with those. It's <laughs> a <The> challenge. <laughs> um, just as an aside, I mean, you mentioned the perfect book. I mean, do you actually think, I mean, do you, do you know any perfect books? I mean, do you think it's possible to write such a thing? I don't, I don't know any perfect books, but I know one or two that are damn close. Care to share that with us? Well, I, th I think Treasure Island comes damn close to the perfect book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a story that has, you know, a terrific storyline, exotic settings that are well described, characters, I mean, like, you know, Long John Silver as an archetype, um, and, and it's beautifully written, and it has, it still has this, this ending that has possibilities for the reader to explore with, you know, it's possibilities that go beyond the book. And to, to me, that's pretty much got everything that, that you could desire in a novel. It's interesting how Stevenson has, um, you know, continues to mm. exert a, a sort of sway over Scottish writers. Good for well, him. Well, he, he could do everything, though. That's the thing about, you know, whatever kind of writer you want to be, there will be something in Stevenson's writing that speaks to you, mm -hmm. something where he has done it before you and probably done it better than you will do. So, you know, Which is if he was around, we'd have to take him out the back and give him a good kicking. <laughs> you know. Along with certain others that we do Too that to anyway. Clever, yes. Too bloody uh, clever by half. You mentioned the, the other characters who've kind of built up uh, their presence in, in previous novels, um, mainly, I guess, the, the um, investigating team. Um, so you have a, a kind of combination of main characters and then a sort of ensemble piece with these other characters mm -hmm. as well. How difficult is that to, to make work in terms of the, the, the sort of structuring and the actual writing? Um, I, th I think I don't, th I actually don't think very much about that. Um, I think the demands of the individual book bring one or two of them to more prominence than the others in any given novel. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of the, the exigencies of the, st the particular storytelling. So I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking, initially I'm thinking in, the, in their terms about the story and how it affects them and who's actually going to be um, tasked with, with carrying the story elements of this book and how that's going to affect them and where it fits in with their history mm -hmm. and what their character, how their character would approach a particular problem. So, you know, I, I look at 
the element of the story I want them to, to be dealing with, then I have to think of, okay, how would, how would Sam do that? How would Stacy do that? How would Paula do that? Um, and so that then all then feeds back into plot because I have to take account of, of how they would approach something and how they would handle it and what they would do with it. Do you think that the, the dynamic of the investigation, or in some cases the investigations uh, that are going on, um, you know, kind of helps pull forward the, the plot or, or in some ways is it, is it, does it get in the way of things? Well, I think, I think the thing about the crime novel is that really everybody knows that murders are not solved the way we write about them in our books and the way you see it on the telly. Um, police work is actually very dogged and very boring and very dull. Um, what, what you have to strive for, I think, with the crime novel is a sense of authenticity so that when you do return to the process of investigation, it feels like, it tastes like, it smells like, it sounds like what this, is, what this would really be like. But because we're not bound by the actual nuts and bolts of process, we can, we can drive the plot at the speed we need it to go. So we can return to aspects of the story as and when it works for us, mm -hmm. because we're not trying to write you know, a factual account of an investigation. What we're trying to write is a story that draws the reader in, that makes, them, that makes them care, that makes them want to turn the page to the next chapter. So in that sense, we can, we can play fast and loose with, with reality as long as it feels to the reader when they're reading it like this could happen, that, that this feels authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, we're just lying to you, you know. <laughs> All the time we're just lying to you. But, you know, you don't mind that, obviously. You're enjoying yourselves. Um, the end, do you have a very firm idea of what the ending, with all this various kind of tying up of different plot lines and so on, is, is going to be or, or not? Well, I used to have a much clearer idea. Uh, now I, I, I have a much less clear idea. I, I, have, I have a sense of where I'm heading for. Um, I have a, you know, a sort of, a sort of no where the book's going to end up. I mean, because obviously, you know, I know who's committed these crimes yeah. and I have a, a sort of, a, I mean, a, but I quite often now don't know the details of how it's going to play out at the end, how they're actually going to be exposed, how Tony's going to, to deal with it at the end. Um, and and uh, it's, the, the, the American writer, E.L. Doctorow, described what, what he called driving at night writing and it's kind of like you, you, you know where you're starting off from and you've got an idea where your destination is. But the, 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 the journey in between is something of a mystery and all you can see at any given time is a bit of road in front of the headlights. So, you know, I feel like I'm constantly moving forward and I know I can see the bit of road so I can see the next maybe five or six sections that I'm going to write and, and where the story is going to go at that point. And I have a sense of what I want the ending to be or what I'm aiming for, but I might not end up in quite that place. So it's, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's kind of, it's much more flexible, I suppose. It's, it's quite terrifying, actually. Um, you know, I mean, when, when, when this first happened to me, I, I, I really, um, I, 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 was, I, I felt like I was sort of like, you know, standing there in the middle of the railway tracks as this, this sort of light came down the tracks towards me. Um, and and, I, and I, I really had no idea where I, what I was going to do because what I thought was, you know, the method that, that, that had stood me in good stead all these years wasn't working anymore and I genuinely wondered if I had come to the end of the, the tracks as it were, uh, this, was, this was it, this was me hitting the buffers. It's Carol Jordan coming to get you. It is, yeah. Um, well, She's uh, got a lot to blame me for really when you think about it. That's interesting you mentioned. So I have to say, that just, just, I'm not actually giving anything away and my agent rang me up at the end of the book and said, you know, good God, is, is, this, is this something approaching a happy ending? I said, don't be bloody ridiculous, of course it isn't. You've got no idea what I'm doing to them in the next book. 
Um, I was interested that you used the word terror there. I mean, do you think that terror and the kind of adrenaline that it might provide is, is an essential part of the writing process? I think, I do think crime writers, we, uh, we get a bit hooked on the whole adrenaline of, of writing about the big thing, life and death. Um, and, and I think um, it's one of the things that, 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 that for me keeps me coming back and back to this form and to the, the, the idea of what you can do with it and the, the options we have now as crime writers because of the way that the, the genre has expanded. And um, I, 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 I do feel when you write about the big things all the time, it's hard to write about things that are not quite that important somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I think you, you do get hooked on that. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there was one of my novels in particular where I was quite a long way into it and we hadn't actually had a, a sort of recent dead body, you know, sort of in anybody's <laughs> lifetime, you know. I was starting to sort of get a little bit anxious, you know, thinking, what am I going to do here? Um, and, 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 and I think it, 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 we, definitely, we definitely get a buzz off of that. I mean, do you not feel the same? Yeah, I do. So well, right I mean, when you kill somebody, it's... it's <laughs> If there's not a murder every 43 pages, then, you know, obviously no, you take no, steps. No, no. I mean, as Raymond Chandler said, you know, famously, if you're if in doubt, have a, a man with a gun coming, bursting in the door. Um, possibly that, a man yeah, with a knife in your yes. case or yeah. some other. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, since we're at that point, let's talk a little bit about violence. Interestingly, I've, I've shared a couple of other um, Scottish crime writing events in the last few days. And in both of them, um, someone from the audience has said that they're fairly horrified about the level of violence in contemporary crime fiction, and they've actually... Um, thrown some books away because they were so horrified. They did ask whose books they were, but they wouldn't come clean, I'm afraid, so I can't help you on that one. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't you, well, but some, well, what, what's your kind of take on violence? I mean, your books are violent. How, do, how would you justify Some of my books are violent. Yeah. Some of my books are violent. Some the, of my these books ones are, are yeah. not. No, well, mostly, well, that's not terribly violent, the new one. I mean, it's not terribly violent in the great scheme of things, is it? Violence I mean, you know. is in the eye of the beholder. Well, before it is it's removed. indeed. <laughs> it is indeed in the eye of the beholder. Um, but I think, you know, the thing I would say first, first of all, is that you know, um, murder is not a parlour game. Sudden violent death is not an entertainment, um, and there are certain kinds of books that require you to be very honest and very direct about what violence is mm -hmm. and what it does. And violence corrupts and defiles everybody it comes into contact with. And that's not just the killer; it's 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 the the victim's family, it's the victim's friends. It's the unsuspecting passers-by who get caught up in it. It's the police officers who investigate it. It's the, the media who write about it. All these lives are touched by violent death. And to pretend that this somehow is, is, is just something about which we can make a light entertainment, I think is, is, is I, don't know, I find it morally questionable. And I think if you're going to write about violent death, then you, you have a kind of duty to write about it in a way that, that demonstrates some understanding of what you're writing about. Sometimes, you can do it um, in an indirect way. The violence happens, as it were, off stage. And you show that by people's reactions, by people's responses, how they live their lives afterwards, how they're touched by it. But sometimes I think it is actually necessary to write very directly about, about what it is and, and what it does. In the Tony Hill novels, um, very particularly, you have at the heart of these books a man whose job it is to look at a crime scene and to read that crime scene in such a way that he can evaluate, if you like, the mind that has done this, that he can draw some conclusions about the sort of person who might have perpetrated this event. Not to write about what the crime is and, and how the killer has, if you like, expressed himself seems to me to be perverse. You end up having scenes that went, hmm, Tony looked at the body. Hmm, he thought. 
I think we're looking for a manual worker who's left-handed and whose father <laughs> left him when he was a small child. You know, I mean, it, becomes, it then becomes a kind of, it becomes a kind of parlor trick that has, has no basis in reality. So if you're actually going to have somebody talking about what they understand, what they, what they, they see in, in someone's actions, and I think you have to show the result of those actions, otherwise what you're doing is, is just silliness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did, did your experience as a newspaper reporter, or does it still you know, help you in, in terms of, you know, kind of coming to or seeing how other people deal with, with that kind of thing? Well, I, I suppose in, in, in the, the widest sense, I mean, working as a journalist gave me access to a huge database of, of different people and different reactions to extreme situations and sometimes you know good extreme situations like winning the lottery you know um, I, I had access to all sorts of lives and, and experiences that that otherwise would have been a closed book to me and okay you do kind of parachute in as a visiting fireman and you usually sort of arrive when, when something quite extraordinary has happened because uh, ordinary things don't make news mm -hmm. so in that, in that sense yeah I mean it's always kind of there filed away the sort of card index in my brain of you know, how people react in particular situations and how different people react, how different people respond, different scenes, different faces. All of these things are sort of filed away. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in that sense, it was a, a, a background for, for writing fiction that was extremely helpful. Um, but I think, I think I got out in time. I think that, um, I think frontline news journalism can also have a very coarsening effect. You have to find a way to deal with the stuff that you're, you're seeing. You know, I, I, I covered Lockerbie, I, I covered Hillsborough. You know, I was at Hillsborough within 45 minutes of it all going off. And you, you see stuff and, and you have to find a way of, of, of processing it and dealing with it. And if you let it penetrate your, your own emotional life, then that does, that, that carries a toll. But if you also build walls and don't let it penetrate, that, that creates another set of problems. And I, I certainly got to the point in my early 30s where I, I said to myself, I do not want to be doing this when I'm 50 because that's a price I don't want to pay. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those things were, you know, I had immensely privileged access to all sorts of people's lives, but um, at the same time I reached the point where I really didn't want that anymore. And do you think also that perhaps um, there's a danger as a fiction writer of that kind of experience of reality um, constricting your imagination? I don't know about constricting my imagination, but I think it constricts um, some of the things, I'm, or some of the things I'm prepared to use as source material. Um, you know, but uh, you know, with with almost no exceptions, I don't draw on real cases mm -hmm. um, because I feel very conscious that um, real cases involve real grief. And we never, however much we think we know what happened in you know, a, a headline murder case that's widely reported, whatever, we don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened in the, the, the lives of those people behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And I think it's possible inadvertently to cause people a lot more grief because you've written something that's come from your fictive imagination that actually touches very closely on, on something that is maybe not in the public domain, but is actually real for those people's lives. Mm -hmm. So I feel quite um, queasy about, about that sort of ripping stories from the headlines. You know, I, I, as a journalist, I, I, I worked out of the north of England, I worked out of Manchester, and the Moores murders case, although it happened in the 1960s, was still entirely a live issue because the murders of children mean that you have um, 
relatives who, who as it were, remain alive for a long time, who knew those children. You know, they, they have brothers, they have sisters, they have parents, they have uncles, they have aunts. Not six months would go by without another Moore's murders related story coming up. So I, I, I saw at first hand um, how much pain those things could still cause all those years later. And you know, I, I just don't want to go there. There are burdens I'll happily carry, but I don't see a need to carry unnecessary ones. All right. Um, you mentioned earlier on the expansion of the crime genre. Um, tell us a bit about that. I mean, how do you see it's expanded? And do you see that expansion continuing now, particularly that pub uh, publishing is, like every other business, in, is in hard times, perhaps? Well, the publishing business might be contracting, but people's imaginations don't contract. Um, and I think, I think the, crime, the crime novel has become a very different thing in the last 20 years. I mean, when I started uh, thinking about writing a crime novel in, in the UK, really, you didn't have much choice other than the police procedural and the village mystery. Um, and then uh, stuff started coming out of America, the, the, you know, what's called the, sort of the new wave of feminist writers, mm -hmm. writers like Sarah Paretsky, Sue Grafton, Barbara Wilson, Mary Wings. And their work was... was just so different from anything else that I had read before. Um, it, it opened up all sorts of, of possibilities. And I think once you start opening up those possibilities, uh, writers are drawn to experiment with the genre. Writers see that there are different possibilities other than just writing these very sort of um, uh, tramline defined novels that are very, very constrained by the supposed rules of genre. Yeah. And all sorts of things become possible. I mean, you, you know, you've experimented with writing futuristic novels. Um, you know, the history mysteries become a big deal. Um, people are, are, are writing psychological suspense. People are writing novels uh, where they're narrated by the killer. People are writing, writing novels that are, I mean, this, the possibilities seem now to be boundless. Mm -hmm. And that's very exciting. I personally think one of the reasons that this has happened is because of what happened with the literary novel in the 80s and the 90s, when you, know, you had all the sort of literary theory, you know, you had your Derrida and your Lacan and your Foucault, and the death of the author and the death of the text. Funny how all of those sound like swear words in Scotland. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Derrida. Yeah, Foucault. Foucault, particularly. Um, but uh, I, I think that the, the, the writers of the literary novel became very engrossed in the idea of literary theory, and I can see the charms of that, I can see the delights I can see the fascination of those kind of ideas. But I think when you part company with the idea of narrative in fiction, then you, you go into very, very dodgy ground indeed. I think, I think readers want stories. I think we're, we're hardwired as human beings for stories. You know, we don't, when somebody says to you, what kind of day have you had? You don't start off with the minute you got out of bed and carry on to when you went to bed at night. You, you, you pull something out of the day and you turn it into a narrative. You make a story of it. I mean, even the most boring people on the planet manage to drag some kind of narrative continuity out of their day. Um, and, and we do this all the time. And I think at a time when, when, when literary writers um, became less interested in that kind of storytelling, writers who wanted to tell stories had to find somewhere different to put themselves and, and at, that, at that point, the crime novel was starting to get very interesting, and I think it became very attractive to a lot of writers like me, who, you know, whose first instincts would have been towards writing literary fiction. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I realised that if I wanted to write the kind of narrative that, that mattered to me as a writer as, and as a reader, 
then the genre was where I would have to do it. Right. Well, but it's great, ago. isn't it? I mean, now, you look, you go, you go into the crime section of a bookshop, and it's fantastic. There's all sorts of books there to accommodate all sorts of tastes. And, you know, I mean, I, I find, you know, I mean, I'm interested in good writing wherever I find it. So I, I personally don't mind if it's really dark noir, or if it's something relatively sort of, you know, like, I suppose, horribly, horrible word, cosy. Um, I mean, somebody once described P.D. James to me as cosy. And I said, have you actually read her books? You know, I, I still remember one of the scenes in an early P.D. James novel is one of those ones that still makes me sort of break out in a sweat at the thought of it. If you read Shroud for a Nightingale, yeah, the scene where the, the, the nurse is, is doing the, the demonstration of gastric feeding and this woman's got a gastric tube she, and then she pours bleach down it instead of milk. I mean, that's the, the horror of that scene still makes me want to run from the room screaming. But, but you know, most people would not describe P.D. James as a noir writer, you know, but I, I, I can take pleasure right across the board. And I think most people who read crime fiction are not narrow in their, in their, in their consumption at all. You know, they're open, they're open to, to trying something different. They're open to stretching themselves. I mean, I think our readership is actually very sophisticated. They're used to sophisticated narratives. They're used to complex storytelling. They're used to sitting there and using their brains. They're thinking, they're trying to figure out where I'm going, where you're going. And our challenge, I think, at this point in, in the, the, the lifetime of the detective novel is to make our books exciting enough and interesting enough and our characters fascinating enough for them to come with us, regardless of the fact that they've figured out by page four where we might be going. So here's the big question. Why do people read crime fiction? So many people read crime fiction. It's you know, the biggest genre. Um, Ask them. <laughs> They're the ones that are doing it. I mean, I've got, you know, I know, I know why I read it. I mean, I read it because I love good storytelling. And I'm always fascinated by, by the challenge of, of figuring out where a writer's going to go with the book. But I also read other fiction as well, and, mm -hmm. and those same things apply to books where you know, somebody isn't necessarily going to end up dead. Mm -hmm. I think there's an excitement in, in, in the crime novel, going back to what we were saying earlier about the, that upping the ante, the, the life and death question. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, and I think we read it for comfort as well. You know, yeah, we do. We've, we've never, I mean, the society we live in now, it, it's a very, it's very fragmented. It's a very, in many cases, very alienated society. You know, when, when our parents were growing up, they knew everybody in their street. They'd grown up with, with the same people in the same town. Mostly, you stayed where you were born unless you went somewhere extreme, like, you know, to the colonies. But mostly, you stayed, you stayed where you grew up, thereabouts. You, you stayed in contact with your family. You knew who everybody was. Um, there's, there's a marvellous line in, in W.H. Auden's poem, In Praise of Limestone, and he's talking about these people who live in these limestone valleys. It says, when one of them goes to the bad, we all understand why. And that was the world we lived in then. But now, when, when one of them goes to the bad, we don't necessarily understand why, because we don't know them. We don't know their history. They moved in three weeks ago to the house next door. We don't know what's going on in their lives. I think there's a lot of, I think we feel, we feel quite insecure. We feel, I think, quite, quite unnerved a lot of the time by the world that we're living in. We don't necessarily understand all the things about the world we're living in in the way that our previous generation's lives were much more comprehensible. And the crime novel is very comforting because you, you might have a killer out there doing terrible things, preying on young teenagers, but you also have Tony Hill and Carol Jordan who are there to fix it. And I think you know, it, is quite, it is quite comforting um, to read a novel that feels authentic, that feels believable, where the, where 
in the broadest sense, good triumphs over evil. Yeah, I was going to say, that has some kind of happy ending, at least an ending that is not completely um, mm. depressing and, and uh, distressing. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have I think, uh, the crime novel now has endings that are much more complex than they used to be. It's not just a case of, you know, tying everything up in a neat bow and handing it over to Inspector Jap or, or you know, sort of whoever Miss Marple's latest chap at Scotland Yard is. Um, you know, we, we, we do have endings now that, that, that have much more possibility for, for, if you like, a life beyond the book. But still, there is that sense of, yeah, something gets resolved. And, you know, I mean, uh, people sometimes say to me, aren't, aren't you worried about people, you know, copying ideas from your books and going off and becoming serial killers? I'm going like, yeah, you'd read my book and think, going off and being a serial killer, that's a great job. <laughs> That'd be a good career move. Well, they might go off and become cops, I suppose. So. Yeah. Well, they might, they might go off and become cops, which would be a good thing, generally speaking. Let me ask you, since we're in Scotland, about the state of Scottish crime fiction. You've been a great pro pro proponent of it and supporter of it over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think it's still going strong? And, and do you think there's any way of defining it in, in terms of, does it have something that other crime fiction doesn't have? Yeah, I think it's terrifying how many good new Scottish crime writers keep cropping up every time you turn around. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, something should be done about it, <laughs> frankly. Shoot them. <laughs> yes, that's possible, yes. You know, I mean, uh, it, it seems to me that you know, sort of almost every, every time I turn around, there, there's another, you know, people that, you know, four years ago I was saying, and there's this, this really interesting new writer, Stuart McBride, and now he's on his sixth novel. You know, you think, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Get out more. Don't, write, don't stay at home writing so much. And then you turn around, and then, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a new uh, Liam McIlvany, um, who's actually William McIlvany's mm -hmm. son, has just published his first novel, All the Colours of the Town. Um, set in, in Glasgow and Belfast, and it's a terrific novel, um, terrific crime novel, um, set in, in say, Glasgow and Belfast, central character is a journalist, it's a really, really good read, and all this stuff keeps coming and keeps coming. And in it's, terms it's hard. of and, a and distinguishing I quality? I think there is a distinguishing quality, I think, I think and I think it comes from um, what, I'm going, to say, I'm going to do my intellectual moment here, what Hugh McDermott called the Caledonian anti-Syzygy. Um, which basically is, a, is a, a, a sort of fancy way of saying we're schizophrenic here. Um, on the one hand, you've got the sort of doer Calvinist Presbyterianism, and on the other hand, you've got the sort, of, the sort of Gale, the Celt, the musician wanting to have a party. And I think these, these forces are always pulling against each other in, in the Scottish psyche. And, and I think one of the results of that is that, that we're, we are interested in the sort of the dark side of the soul. We're interested in, in what happens when, when, when differences collide. And I think the other thing that we all have is that sort of black sense of humour, the gallows humour. Um, and, and, and I think pretty much all of the Scottish writers I can think of do have this, this sort of sense of sometimes laughing at inappropriate things at inappropriate moments. Or, uh, well, that's how other people see it, of course. <laughs> we think, that was a bloody good joke. <laughs> um, so I, so I, but I, I think it's, it's, it's also sometimes a bit hard to quantify, but I mean, if you read a contemporary English crime novel and a contemporary Scottish crime novel, they are different. There is a different feel. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, I mean, there are, that's not to say there are not some really good new English crime writers as well, but I think the Scots definitely are, are writing the more exciting and more interesting and more innovative work at the moment. Right. One last question from me and then we'll open to the floor, so get your thinking caps on for questions. Um, uh, obviously, The Wire and the Blood has been a tremendously successful, or Wire and the Blood, I think it's called itself, a uh, tremendously successful TV series. Have you found in any way that what they've done with your stories, or even with their own stories, has 
you know, affected what you're then writing? Is it sort of a circular process, like I think it happened to Colin Dexter with uh, Morris to some extent? Yeah, I, I think it, it hasn't happened to me to quite the extent that it happened with, with Colin, and partly because um, Robson Green physically is very like the Tony Hill in my head. So the fact that I now see Robson instead of the Tony Hill in my head is, is kind of, it's not been a, it's, it's, it wasn't a big jump. Mm -hmm. And I still see my Carol Jordan, because Hermione Norris, as good as she was, uh, was physically not the type of Carol Jordan. So I still have my Carol Jordan. But I think I have, I think some of the, the mannerisms that we developed for the television, um, I mean, like, the thing is that the, in the books, a lot of what happens happens inside his head. And it really doesn't make for good television to have somebody going, hmm. <sighs> well. So, so we developed the idea of him writing on a whiteboard and, and, and talking to himself. And I think he now talks to himself more in the books than he used to. Um, before in the books when he would just be thinking it, now sometimes he actually says it out loud. And I mean, that's probably been the, the, the biggest thing. I, I have been very well served by Coastal Productions who came to this really with the, the desire of, of making the television because they loved the books and they respected the books. So they, they did come to it with the, the sort of sense that they wanted to stay as close to, to my fic fictional landscape, if you like, the hinterland mm -hmm. of the books as well as, as they could. And so what actually ended up on the screen, I think, is of a piece with the books, right. which doesn't often happen. Absolutely. Because there's a very bizarre thing that happens when, when television companies and filmmakers option a book f or a series of books for adaptation. You would think, wouldn't you, that by choosing this particular series of books or particular novel to adapt, it would be because they liked that series of books <laughs> or they, they thought that particular novel um, was good. But then it seems that as soon as they actually get their hands on it and they get control of it, they want to make it something completely different. It's a bit like women who marry people or men who marry people thinking they're going to change them. But you know, I mean, like, you know, why buy a series for adaptation if you're then going to turn it into something completely bizarrely different? I mean, I think if you were to watch an episode of D.L. and Pascoe now and to read one of Reginald Hill's D.L. and Pascoe novels, you'd be going, isn't that funny? It's got the same name as that television series. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's, it, it baffles me as to why, why, why the adapters do this to something. I mean, why, if you want to make something, you know, like, like you end up with, why not just make it anyway? Why go through the pretense of saying this is based on the novels of such and such? So, no strong feelings there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks from me, Val. We'll have the house lights up so we can see, see even more clearly. Thank you. Who would like to join or even start a debate? Don't worry, she's not terribly frightening. <laughs> I've been really nice to you today, excuse me. You have, yeah, well, I'm sort of slightly surprised. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. Off. Uh, have you seen the American um, series, The Mentalist? And if you have, how do you think that relates to Tony Hill? They're supposedly doing the same sort of thing, but the series are very different. I haven't actually seen it, so I, I can't, sorry, offer anything on that, I'm afraid. Okay. Lady here at the front. Why do you think women make the best crime novelists? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to get me into trouble here, aren't you? <laughs> um, I, think, I think women write different, write different kinds of crime novels from men. And I think um, 
there's a good reason for that, and it's, it's principally a reason of social conditioning. Um, girls are brought up to think that uh, we will not get what we want by direct confrontation, that we have to develop what the Buddhists call subtle means if we are going to get what we want. And some might describe that as, as manipulation or, or deviousness. Um, but I think that this, this, this inculcates in us, if you like, a habit of mind of coming at things indirectly and, and looking at things um, in, in a sort of slightly more complex way. But little boys learn quite early on that if you want something, then you take it from someone, you take it in a very direct way. This is, this is the, the broadest sort of generalizations, but these generally are how we grow up thinking. Women also grow up thinking of themselves as potential victims. And that's not something that men generally do. They're generally brought up in a culture where they're supposed to be the victor, if you like, rather than the victims. They're supposed to be the person in control, the person with power. And I think these factors mean that women understand very well the potential of fear. So I think when women write about violence, we almost always write about it from the perspective of the person against whom the violence is perpetrated. And we write novels uh, we, we are drawn instinctively to writing novels where the plot is convoluted, where things don't happen necessarily in, in the obvious way. Men, by and large, tend to write novels that are much more linear. And when men write about violence, they tend to write about it very much more from the outside. They see it from the point of view of someone exerting the violence, practicing the violence. And it seems to me this creates a different feel in their books. And I don't think it's... Um, I think it's probably helpful to say that men write better books than women or women write better books than men. I think that in, in most cases, although there are exceptions, women and men write quite different sorts of crime novel. Um, and it's a matter for individual readers what, you're, what you tend to be drawn to. Of course, we do have the, the perennial problem as women writers that um, women read books, I mean, and, and all the research that's been done on this backs, backs this up quite comprehensively. Women read books written by men and by women. Men read books written by men, by and large. Obviously, you guys in the room here are much too intelligent to fall for something that simplistic. And you're much more open-minded than the average male reader. But that is... All, all the research tells us that that's what, what, what it, how, how, it, how it goes. So, in a sense, you know, sort of men start off with an inbuilt advantage in this field when it comes to selling books because women and men will buy your books, but... A lot of men won't buy my books because I'm a girly. <laughs> I, did once, I did once sit with, with, with the, a major chain book buyer. And uh, I, I was, I was at a, a, a dinner with, with various book buyers from, from big trade companies. Uh, and uh, this, this chap was telling me that you know, when he took this job as, as this sort of crime buyer for his particular company, he had no idea how much reading was going to be involved. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, I, 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 and I asked him very politely, I said, and have you ha had a chance to read my new book yet? And he just looked at me and said, no, I, said, no, I don't read books by women. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to get a good show on your shelves next season. <laughs> so, so I think that there are, I mean, these, 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 there are differences. I don't think it's, I, th I think it's, it's clear that, that we, we write different kinds of books. But, you know, um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know that I would want to make a value judgment because I personally read a lot of books written by men that I enjoy very much. Wonderfully diplomatic. Um, but also truthful. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, someone else. Yep, someone over there. Okay. Um, without comedy pratfalls. Um, 
Do you, looking back over your career, which has obviously gone on for quite a while as a writer now, as opposed to as a journalist, um, obviously the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan novels are the last, you know, which I've been aware of for the last four or five years, but have lasted longer, and the recent standalone novels are enormously popular. But do you feel that your earlier work is sort of ghettoised in a way as either women's fiction or lesbian fiction? And do you, you know, is there any plan to sort of reissue that work to bring it to a wider audience or to revisit those characters? Well, all the books are in print and actually the, all the books have been constantly in print since they were first published. Um, I, don't, I don't know that... I mean, initially, because the, the Lindsay Gordon books were published by the women's press, uh, bookshops tended to ghettoise them um, rather than readers, I would say. And that once readers were actually... Uh, exposed to the books, they read them and enjoyed them. Uh, I would say that the Lindsay Gordon books and the Kate Brannigan books um, were books where I was, I was feeling my way as a writer as well. I mean, I was, I was finding out what I could do. Um, I think any writer who actually cares about what they're doing, uh, cares about developing and growing and, and um, acquiring more sophisticated skills, um, and developing the possibilities of what they can write about. And for me, that, I mean, I, I, I suppose I look at the trajectory of my career as being one where I have I've continually tried to, to push myself into doing um, the best that I could do at the time that I could do it. Um, and at, I think that the Lindsay Gordon books, I mean, they span about 15 years between the first one and, and, and the last one. And I never say never, um, you know, I. I I have no plans to write another Lindsay Gordon, but I don't know if she'll come knocking at the door of my mind. For a long time, I thought I would write a, a, another Kate Brannigan novel, and I had an idea for a story. But the longer the time went by, and it didn't fit into the schedule, and it didn't really knock hard enough at the front door of my mind, the more I've come to, to feel that I probably have said goodbye to that character. And I think that's probably right, because those, those novels were very much of their place and of their time. I mean, they are, as, as much as anything else, a sort of social history of Manchester in the 1990s. And I'm not convinced at all that I want to revisit that, uh, that world. And it, it would have to be a very, very different kind of book if it was written now. Um, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think being a writer is a bit like being a shark. You have to keep moving forward or you die. Um, and so for me, I've always written the books that, that, that were important to me at the time. And as you move forward, then you know you move forward, and you you know I mean I will continue to write books that matter to me, and I have no idea what those books will be, um, and I have no idea what people's responses to them will be, but I will move forward and write the books that that I care about that that, that demand to be to be written. Someone from this half of the audience like to to ask a question. We're democratic here, being Scots. And if you don't start Certainly. asking questions, we'll just pick people at random. <laughs> You, what do you think? <laughs> With the subject of new crime fiction, I, I've been curious lately as to when there's an author on the front qu quoted about how good the book is, how, how does that come about? Or, or is it the publisher that asks the author, or does the, the writer ask another writer to... Uh, it's a bit like the Fringe program, where everything's unmissable, and, 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 yet, and yet often it is right that if somebody I like says it's very good, and then I read it, it is usually pretty good, so, uh, or very good. 
Well, the, the vexed question of blurbs. Um, I, sometimes, mostly it's the publisher who sends you a book and says, you know, I think you might like this and we're publishing it in three months' time and if you could uh, see your way to saying something nice about it, that would be fabulous. Sometimes it's uh, a writer that, wh whose work that you know and uh, who is a personal friend and they ask you. I mean, my, my general rule is that I won't blurb a book unless I write it. I mean, unless I like it, sorry. <laughs> no, there was... Yeah, as they say in Psychoville, that was a Freudian clit. <laughs> I, 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 will not, I will not blurb a book that I haven't read and that I didn't like. Um, publishers, however, are not always entirely scrupulous, it has to be said. And I mean, I, I, many years ago now, I, I had a, a review, review column in the Manchester Evening News. Now, I have not had my review column in the Manchester Evening News uh, for eight years, something like mm. that. And I still pick up novels um, by writers that I reviewed 10 years ago. And a line from that review of a book that that writer published 10 years ago is there on the jacket of their new book, um, which is, I think, oh, I could fairly say, a less than honest practice. And I, 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 as, a, as a reviewer, I very seldom wrote anything other than you know, reviews that I thought were constructive. Um, but on, on a couple of occasions, I, I did write reviews where essentially I said to, to, to the readers, please don't buy this book, save your money and buy a good book. And in uh, one particular review I, I had written, uh, I criticised, and not in a particularly constructive way, pretty much every single aspect of that book. And I did, but I did say at one point, there's no doubt that X knows how to make readers turn the pages. But, and then went on. And when the paperback came out, there on the jacket was a quote from me saying, there's no doubt that X knows how to make readers turn the pages. And I thought that was actually profoundly dishonest. So, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, I, I, I speak for myself, I will not blurb a book that I haven't read and I haven't enjoyed. I have no control sometimes over things that are in the public domain from five books ago. And I know perfectly well, and I'm sure you know who, I'm, who, who the writers are here, I mean, writers out there who will blurb anything, they would blurb a bus ticket if you asked them. <laughs> and they've never met a book they didn't like. Um, it's free, so, it's but, free but you can publicity only, yeah, for them, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. And I mean, as I say, you know, you, you, I think it's a thing where you have to ask people individually what their policy is on blurbing, and that's, that's what mine is. Okay, time for one more question. It needs to be quick on the answer too. So, yep, gentlemen there. Briefly, um, You spoke about people's perception of violence being relative. Uh, I, I think some of the scenes in your book are extremely violent. The, the Mermaid Sings, for instance, the torture scenes are grotesque. W where on earth do you get the ideas from? Is it your oh. background in Fife? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, I will say uh, two things, really. I, I, find it, uh, I find it very interesting that men always talk about the Mermaid Singing. As, as the book that is most violent and most disturbing and most appalling. And isn't it interesting that that's the only book where the victims are men? <laughs> and I would add to that, I would add to that, that there is not a single torture in that book that I invented. Uh, that the tortures that I actually use in The Mermaid Singing were invented some considerable time ago by the Catholic Church uh, in the form of the Inquisition. 
Um, the, what I used in that book were all, were all medieval torture engines. Uh, if you would like to see the original examples of them, you can go to the torture museum in San Gimignano and see them for yourself. They are hideous, they are terrifying. The most appalling thing about them is, is the beauty of them. The, the, the quality of the craftsmanship involved in constructing these, these instruments that are, have one purpose only, and that is to inflict hideous damage upon the human body. Um, the, 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 the people who perpetrated the tortures of the Inquisition had a, a scientific curiosity about what they were doing. And, and um, um, for example, they would measure their victims before and after they had been put on the rack to see how much they'd actually stretched them. So, I mean, uh, while I accept responsibility for having adapted this for a contemporary crime novel, I accept no responsibility for inventing this stuff. Everything I've ever been told by, by my, my contacts in the world of um, criminal psychology is that whatever uh, we writers come up with, what is out there in the wild is far, far worse than our worst imaginings. Well, you notice that I've had my legs crossed all through this, Marcel. <laughs> and I will continue until the very end. And unfortunately, this is the end. Um, as I said at the beginning, Val will be happy to continue talking to you and, of course, to sign books of the, in effect, advanced copies of the new book, uh, Fever of the Bone, uh, in the main signing tent. If you'd allow us to get out before you stampede, we would appreciate that. All that I need to do now is to thank very much Val McDermott. Thank you, sir.